You're listening to Podnosis. I really can vividly remember walking towards the hospital where I was doing my rotations and seeing kind of smoke billowing out of a smokestack on campus. And it just got me thinking about what kind of externalities do our healthcare operations cause in the communities that we serve. That was a Bowl. Each week, we tell you that here at Podnosis, we have the pulse on the healthcare industry. Well, we can't talk about healthcare unless we talk about the climate. The underpinning of healthcare is the Hippocratic Oath to first do no harm. So it's against the mission of healthcare to be poisoning people in the environment, to be causing, helping to cause climate change in service of healing people. So there's a reckoning that's happening in the healthcare sector. That was Gary Cohen. From Fierce Healthcare, I'm Teresa Carey, and today's episode is dedicated entirely to healthcare's relationship to climate change. In the last few years especially, the climate crisis has really started to hit home. We're seeing more heat waves, more extreme weather events, more infectious diseases, and more people winding up in the hospital because of climate-related challenges. But what about the healthcare industry's role in climate change? Well, just to put this into perspective, in the U.S., healthcare accounts for 10% of the nation's carbon emissions. Globally, it is responsible for 5% more carbon emissions than the aviation industry. One year ago, the White House and Health and Human Services launched a health sector climate pledge, committing to climate resilience and reducing emissions. Since then, more than 100 organizations representing hospitals and health centers, suppliers, insurance companies, and others have signed on. The Indian Health Service, Veterans Health Administration, and Military Health System have also embraced these goals. More than 15% of U.S. federal and private hospitals have made commitments to improve climate resilience and reduce emissions. Anastasia Gledkovskia sat down with Gary Cohen, to talk about the way the healthcare industry is addressing its role in climate change. Cohen is president and co-founder of Healthcare Without Harm, an environmental advocacy group. Here they are. Hey, Gary, it's really nice to talk to you again. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So I I wanted to dive right in. Um, You know, it seems like observing the healthcare industry and writing about it every day, more and more healthcare stakeholders are hiring for ESG roles. They are publicly um, announcing goals towards sustainability. They're establishing teams that are dedicated to addressing climate change. I'm curious to hear what you think about this growing movement and what you think is driving it. Well, I think there's been an enormous sea change in the last two years especially around the healthcare sector addressing the climate crisis as a strategic imperative. The underpinning of healthcare is the Hippocratic Oath to first Mm -hmm. do no harm. The health sector in the United States is eight and a half percent of greenhouse gas emissions for the entire country. And that globally, healthcare is responsible for almost 5% of total greenhouse gas emissions around the world. That's the equivalent of over 500 coal-fired power plants. So it's against the mission of healthcare to be poisoning people in the environment, 
to be causing, helping to cause climate change in service of healing people. So there's a reckoning that's happening in the healthcare sector around uh, addressing its own climate footprint, around recognizing that in times of crisis, like these extreme weather events, like pandemics, people rely on the healthcare uh, industry to, to catch them, to heal them, to address their injuries. Um, and what we are realizing also is that healthcare is not really, it hasn't designed its facilities and its supply chain to address this level of collective trauma. So for example, in the summer of uh, last summer in Britain, when it was 104 degrees for, a, for more than a week, one fifth of all the hospitals in that country stopped operations because they couldn't deal with the heat. Wow. So I think the other thing is that there's governments are also coming to this. So we healthcare that harm joined with the world health organization and the, uh, the national health service, the British government in, in England, um, and designed a program for the conference of parties around the climate treaty, the Paris climate treaty, uh, a couple of years ago. And so when the meeting was held in Glasgow of all the countries, 62 countries signed up to this health program and the health program is committing governments to low carbon healthcare systems, resilient healthcare systems. Um, and, uh, and so th that's incredible, 62 countries. Right. Um, so there's momentum at, at coming from many different places um, that, is, that is bringing this front and center as an important uh, critical uh, issue to address for the healthcare sector. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to, to hear you talk about the different, um, all the different moving parts that are at play that are contributing to, to moving this movement along. At last we spoke, you had mentioned that the initial enthusiasm um, in, in healthcare was coming mostly from folks that were kind of dedicated to this work, you know, ESG or sustainability focused roles. And now we're seeing kind of a growing pressure from people lower down the chain, from people on the front lines, from clinicians and, um, you know, frontline workers who really want to be involved in mitigating their impact on the environment. Um, it, it, do you think that that's the result of just becoming much more aware uh, about the crisis and the urgency of the crisis, or maybe they are becoming more influential in the space in terms of having a voice and being able to influence health system strategy? Younger clinicians that are that are coming of age now and starting to work in healthcare they're they're passionate about the climate crisis they they see it for what it is which is an existential threat and the greatest public health threat we face on the planet in the same way in my generation growing up we understood nuclear war as that and so you know uh, the physicians for the prevention of nuclear war were really influential in those debates around nuclear power and controlling weapons, et cetera, um, in, in reframing the debate to say nuclear war is, is, is horrific uh, for people's health on this planet. And it's the same is true for climate. And so clinicians are realizing the health impacts uh, of, of the climate crisis and our continued reliance on fossil fuels 
And there's a very powerful argument that phasing out fossil fuels will also be good for people's health. Um, so there's a very strong health-based reason to address the climate crisis and our reliance on fossil fuels and toxic chemicals. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, especially for workers that, you know, subscribe to the Hippocratic Oath and um, really might incur a sense of moral injury if they're taking care of people while also, um, you know, poisoning the planet. And now I, I know you mentioned working with the NHS and with the WHO. You're also supporting the United Nations-backed campaign Race to Zero, right? Yes. And more than 60 institutions representing 14,000 hospitals and health health centers globally have signed on. I'm wondering with something that size, how do you think about tracking and measuring progress and holding organizations accountable? So we've, we developed, um, in addition to an analysis of healthcare's footprint, we also developed uh, a roadmap and a decarbonization roadmap around the key interventions that healthcare needs to make to decarbonize, to move toward net zero. We also created a tool called Climate Checkup, which allows them to actually measure their footprint and their progress. And actually this uh, next month uh, in Pittsburgh, we're bringing together some of these uh, hospital systems that have committed to, to, to net zero, to the race to zero, to come together and to share best practices and to begin to really kind of raise up what are those those best interventions, what are those best practices that we could then socialize across our entire network? Because we've got partner organizations like 1,600 different institutional partners across 80 countries. So I'll give you one example. In the state of Chhattisgarh in India, um, the state government has solarized over a thousand clinics. So in a place where the, the electrical grid is so insecure, mm. um, having solar power to run uh, facilities not only reduces uh, the climate footprint and builds resilience into those systems, but it actually improves patient care. It allows them to use equipment and energy and electricity at night. They can do surgeries, they can do births. So there's documentation that even this transition that towards solar is actually uh, improving patient care. So that kind of intervention, that could be done all over the world. So mm. uh, by having a global network, we can actually create uh, change at a scale, that a global scale that really matters for solving this crisis. Mm -hmm. And apart from sharing uh, some of the evidence of, of um, case studies that have worked or strategies that have been really successful. My understanding is that members are invited to submit annual progress reports on their work. Is that right? And um, is yeah. that required? Yes, we, we think that transparency here is uh, in this sector is, is critical. It's critical everywhere. And um, because there are many different companies all over the world making various claims about their climate footprint. And unless we have a standardized way of measuring that and holding them accountable to that um, so that it's not some kind of greenwashing, uh, I think the principle of transparency and accountability is crucial because that's what we, that's the big turn here is that healthcare needs to go outside 
of just treating sick people to actually being part of a much broader healing mission in communities and on the planet. I love that. Yeah. And I wanted to circle back to the tool that you mentioned um, that Healthcare Without Harm has developed to help healthcare institutions measure their carbon or climate footprint. Can you explain how that works and if it's already available? And also, if you could touch on the importance of a tool like this to be free and widely available, especially for low margin hospitals. Yeah. So one of the one of the impediments that many systems face is, well, how can we measure our climate footprint? And uh, there are various tools out there. Um, some of them are limited in scope. They only cover, for example, the energy that the hospital uses or the energy that it buys. So those are called scope one and scope two. But in healthcare, scope three, that that big chunk of, of their greenhouse gas emissions is in their supply chain and in their investments. And that could be 75 plus percent of healthcare's climate footprint. So we created a tool that allows hospitals to measure their scopes one, two, and three greenhouse gas emissions. That's the whole, that's the whole um, set of, 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 of measurements. And there are many systems that don't have the money to hire a big consulting firm or high-tech firm to, to uh, provide a tool for them like that. So we're, we've been very concerned that we think that every hospital should be able to move down this path. Um, and so we're actually next month launching this free tool that will allow any hospital in America to to measure their full greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so there's still a myth that somehow all this has to cost too much money and we don't have the money to do that, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But there's, there's, uh, there are many interventions that save money. When you reduce your waste dramatically, you save money and, and reduce the amount of things that you throw away so that things can be reprocessed. And then, of course, the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act creates a lot of incentives for hospitals, especially hospitals that are operating in poorer communities, um, impacted communities, um, to take advantage of different renewable energy and energy efficiency strategies. We just worked, uh, we made recommendations to the Center for Medicaid and Medicare that some of the rulemaking in the IRA was making it difficult for hospitals to uh, move away from diesel backup and and support microgrids, renewable mm. microgrids in their in their communities. And so the C CMS has just issued a waiver that allows hospitals to deploy these microgrids. So there's all sorts of opportunities and there's a the government is is um, is listening to healthcare to say, you know, what can we do to actually facilitate your decarbonization strategy as part of the overall U.S. government's commitment. So mm -hmm. the momentum is very strong and there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, at least we've seen over the last two years, just an exponential growth in this movement. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. My last question to you would be, you know, you mentioned the supply chain and it's not something we got to talk a lot about. 
how does the supply chain fit into this work? And um, can you talk about the benefit of aggregate purchasing power for hospitals and health systems? Yeah. So in fact, just yesterday, we in Kaiser Permanente and a number of health systems um, held a roundtable with some of the largest medical device um, suppliers in the sector. What our experience has been is that if we can create standards for what toxic-free, climate-smart, you know, low-carbon products look like, then we can aggregate across many large hospital systems that are in our membership um, to create the, the market pull, um, the demand um, for innovations in the healthcare supply chain. And so, uh, you know, we did that with Mercury, where we got the largest healthcare systems in the country to say, we, we just want mercury-free uh, measuring devices, thermometers and blood pressure devices. And it, it forced the market to completely change so that you can't buy a mercury thermometer mm. now in America or anywhere in the world. And we want a global treaty phasing it out. So our experience is that that kind of um, aggregated power of healthcare, which represents tens of billions of dollars, is, is, is a very strong incentive for the supply chain companies to innovate toward low carbon processing technologies. Mm, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, that's an encouraging note to end on. Thank you so much for your time and excited to keep following this movement. Yes. Thanks so much for inviting me to speak. When it comes to environmental justice, kids are uniquely vulnerable to toxic climate exposures. They are in critical stages of growth and development and rely on a stable infrastructure to function at their best. Aperna Bowl works at the Office of Climate Change and Health Equity, where she serves as a senior consultant. Bowl sat down with Anastasia Gladkovskia to talk about why healthcare organizations must go beyond addressing their direct emissions to truly improve health equity. Here they are. Hi, Aperna. It's really nice to meet you. I'm excited to talk to you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, um, you know, to my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're one of the folks kind of leading the charge um, or consulting on the White House and Health and Human Services Health Sector Pledge to, you know, build resilience and decarbonize the health sector. And I'm wondering, to kick us off, maybe you could tell us a bit about your experience as a doctor and the sort of things that you witnessed that really drove you to, to do this work in government. Certainly. I'm happy to share. I'm a pediatrician by training and practice. I've been a general pediatrician in Cleveland, Ohio for a number of years and really first started making connections between some of the environmental impacts in the health sector and the health of the patients that we're serving way back when I was in medical school. And I really can vividly remember walking towards the hospital where I was doing my rotations and seeing kind of smoke billowing out of a smokestack on campus. And it just got me thinking about where that smoke was going and what was in it. Where did it come from? And by extension, you know, wh where, where does our waste go? And what kind of externalities do our healthcare operations cause in the communities that we serve? And, um, and just got me thinking about 
how consistent it would be with our mission if we could really be intentional about thinking about our, our environmental impact, our purchasing practices, our energy efficiency, um, and those kinds of issues. Uh, so that was that visual of really walking up to the hospital as a medical student, I think, kind of set me on this journey. Mm, fascinating. That's such a powerful image. I could just picture it in my head. Um, and I'm wondering, since you're a pediatrician, maybe you can spe speak specifically to pediatric public health and environmental justice. Um, top of mind for me is, you know, recently at the Vive conference last month, there was a panel that was pretty much dedicated to talking about the unequal investment in children's health that the U.S. sees. Uh, you know, a lot of federal programs and investors, they focus a lot more on adult health care. And when we think about environmental health, um, you know, it seems like there's a lot of emphasis on adult health care, but not necessarily on children. Can you talk about, um, you know, how you think about that in the context of your experiences? Certainly. I think there are a few different dimensions to consider that question, and it's a great question. The first is when we think about children and environmental justice, it's important to remember that toxic environmental exposures are disproportionately harmful to children. Children are really uniquely vulnerable to environmental exposures of all kinds for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, some of that has to do with critical windows of growth and development, so just kind of the physiology of infancy and childhood. Some of that has to do with developmentally appropriate behaviors, hand-to-mouth behaviors. Children who are close to the ground, crawling around, may have different uh, environmental exposures than adults. Children breathe more air, drink more water, eat more food um, per pound of body weight than adults do, so that uh, alters their exposure profile. And children rely on adults and functioning community infrastructure for their daily needs. So when there are disruptions um, related to, for example, climate-fueled disasters, children may be uniquely vulnerable there as well. Um, so children are bearing an unequal burden when it comes to environmental exposures. And then you made the, um, the connection with investments in healthcare and sometimes a, um, a, a lack of attention around children's health care. And I think there's a tie in there as well, because there's a really powerful connection between preventive health care and public health investments and sustainability in health care. Um, you know, avoiding the need for resource intensive health care is one of the most sustainable interventions we can make. And the way to do that is to invest in prevention, to invest in children, to help ensure a life a lifetime of good health, to invest in public health and some of those supports um, that help to keep people, children, and families healthy. Uh, those are really important components of, of thinking about what sustainability really means in healthcare. Hmm, that's a great point. Thank you. And so when we think about, you know, the the multiple ways that the healthcare sector in the US contributes to climate change, you mentioned a few energy, you know, waste disposal, uh, building and supply chain. Of course, there are multiple scopes of emissions, some are direct, some are indirect. When you think about this work, what elements of the healthcare sector um, are contributing in the most harmful ways? Yeah, you mentioned the various scopes of emissions, and I, I think that can get a little technical for folks, but just to be uh, uh, sort of simplify, uh, we think about three scopes uh, when we are describing greenhouse gas emissions, right? So scope one emissions are those that occur from sources that are controlled or owned by an organization. Um, so for example, um, uh, emissions associated with uh, fuel combustion and boilers or furnaces, um, on site, scope two emissions are uh, 
are emissions associated with the purchase of, of electricity, steam, heat, or cooling, so kind of purchase power. And then scope three emissions are indirect admission, uh, emissions that relate to the supply chain. So um, uh, healthcare, just like every other sector, um, considers emissions from all three of those. Um, and they're all important. Um, one thing I'll say is that uh, those emissions that are associated with uh, purchased electricity or if electricity is, is produced on site. Um, important to emphasize that measures that increase energy efficiency of buildings in healthcare, just like in every sector, this is a huge opportunity in every sector, but increasing energy efficiency of buildings is a, kind of a low-hanging opportunity to both save money prevent environmental emissions. It's like a kind of win, 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 and oftentimes um, sort of a, a very high return on investment um, in that kind of investment. There can be also specific opportunities within healthcare um, that are somewhat unique, like for example, opportunities in the operating room um, to manage greenhouse gas emissions associated with anesthetic gases. Uh, and mm -hmm. that can include, for example, um, identifying green, choosing um, uh, anesthetic gases that have a a lower impact, um, a lower greenhouse gas impact that can save money. Also, uh, decreasing waste of anesthetic gases can be important from an environmental and cost-saving standpoint. So those are a couple of examples um, in the scope uh, one and two category. And then scope three emissions uh, typically represent the lion's share of greenhouse gas emissions in the health sector. And they can also be challenging to manage because now we're talking about um, inventorying and managing emissions uh, across the supply chain. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. Yeah, I think the tendency is to just, you know, maybe measure the take the traditional measurements of, of carbon footprint and, um, you know, want to tackle the, the really big picture items, you know, of so many organizations are committing to net zero emissions um, and um, zero waste. But like you said, there are kind of smaller initiatives that should be considered that may impact equity um, and populations on a more local level. Do you have any recommendations for ways that organizations can measure this sort of thing? Because I feel like it could be a little difficult or maybe not as tangible in terms of impact on a community, but it's, it's important nonetheless. I'll mention first that when it comes to tracking and measuring um, environmental impact and emissions, the Energy Star Portfolio Manager is a great tool. Many healthcare organizations use that already, and it's a, a very highly valuable in tracking things like emissions, but also managing, um, you know, identifying opportunities for uh, cost reduction and sort of tracking returns on investment for energy investment. So it's important to highlight that dimension of tracking. As far as tracking and measuring some of the impacts of some of these uh, these other dimensions, I think there are a few things to consider. Um, I think engagement of stakeholder groups like patient and family advisory councils, if there are other community groups that the health system is engaging with, that can be helpful in identifying sort of the issues that are of highest value and priority to the communities that we serve. I think that can be really helpful. It's a, it's a little qualitative, but I know in my own health system, working with patient and family advisory councils were really helpful. was really helpful in doing mm. things like developing education about green cleaning practices. Like why are we using these, these kinds of cleaners and what is the benefit to our health of our staff and to you, that was very important to our patient and family advisory, one of our patient and family advisory councils. So that helped direct that investment. Um, similarly with waste management, you know, that, that recycling was really important to our constituents. Um, you know, one comment I would make is that 
I remember when I first started this work, sometimes I would get frustrated that people always wanted to talk about recycling and like nothing else. And, <laughs> it, you know, and, and of course, like energy efficiency, energy efficiency, energy efficiency are our top three priorities mm-hmm. in, in starting this work to really like pick that low hanging fruit. You know, if we're wasting energy, we're wasting money, we're wasting resources, we're we're harming the environment and we're diverting resources from patient care. So I, I would always want to beat that drum. And I still do. But I think what I learned is that, you know, on the other hand, recycling programs are highly visible. They're valued by our stakeholders. It's an opportunity to communicate and educate. So I had some learning to do myself in this space. Um, so definitely don't want to take away from the, the extreme importance of managing energy, of going down this path, also of a scope three inventory, like I just discussed, all of those things, super important. Don't want to take our eye off that prize. But I think that community engagement um, really seeking to interact with stakeholders like patient and family advisory councils, those can be really, I think, helpful ways to prioritize the maybe less kind of like quantifiable benefits of some of these other initiatives we're talking about. Mm, great tips. Great tips. Thank you. Um, so let's turn to your work um, You know, at the Office of Climate Change and Health Equity. Maybe you can give us a sense of you know, how your work as a pediatrician informs the the sort of work that you do there and maybe at a high level, the types of policies or incentives that you're, you're currently considering um, to this end. Sure. I'm happy to, to discuss that. Uh, the Office of Climate Change and Health Equity really has a coordinating role in partnering, partnering uh, with operating divisions across the Department of Health and Human Services to engage in activities related to climate change and health equity. And that includes Um, promoting decarbonization and resilience in the health sector. It also includes uh, promoting and improving protection for vulnerable populations. Uh, We talked a little bit about justice already, and it's important to remember that climate impacts are inequitably distributed, kind of hence the name of our office, really centering the fact that protecting vulnerable populations is our top priorities. One thing I'll highlight is the fact that our, uh, our health sector climate pledge has reopened. Um, There were a couple of periods over the past year where that pledge was open to health sector organizations to sign on, uh, to voluntarily commit uh, to decarbonization and resilience goals. And now that pledge is reopened and is reopened indefinitely. Not only is the pledge open, there are a number of uh, supporting resources on the OCHI website that can help healthcare organizations of a variety of different types. We have facilities of all types engaged, um, so can help those organizations uh, to access resources that will support those pledge commitments. Fantastic. That's great for our listeners to know about. And in terms of you know, pollution standards or um, regulations or financial incentives that currently exist or that you're thinking about, um, you know, what, what's out there? What should healthcare organizations be aware of or um, can, can look to in order to um, engage in this work? One thing that I would highlight, it's it's more about sort of tools and resources and guidelines uh, from HHS relates to climate resilience in the healthcare sector. There are a range of tools, resources, as well as guidelines and requirements that relate to climate resilience or really to emergency preparedness and resilience in the health sector. 
And um, one thing that healthcare organizations uh, should know is that there is an HHS Sustainable and Climate Resilient Healthcare Facilities Toolkit that uh, is currently online. It's really a step-by-step resource for planning and implementation around climate resilience for healthcare facilities. Uh, I think another piece, I mentioned the uh, compendium of federal uh, resources that is currently listed on the OCHI website. Uh, that's a very helpful um, uh, sort of reference list, including links to potential funding resources for the health sector. And then finally, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act represents uh, a real opportunity for the health sector um, and beyond when it comes to climate action. And what I can say about that is that uh, there are some existing resources like a, a guidebook from the White House on the Inflation Reduction Act that, that healthcare organizations can access. And we anticipate updating uh, initial in, in additional information as it becomes available to assist the healthcare sector in navigating those resources. Great, thank you so much for that rundown. That's really helpful. And I'm wondering, you know, when it comes to doing this work as a healthcare organization or stakeholder, how do you think about the importance of community partnerships and partnerships with local nonprofits, um, advocacy groups, community-based organizations, whether that's in terms of patient education or um, in terms of resource management, um, you know, maybe some thoughts on that? I think it's incredibly important, uh, starting with this topic of, of climate resilience. You know, I'm often asked, what, what does climate resilience really mean in the health healthcare sector? Uh, you know, we, we engage in emergency preparedness in the, in the healthcare sector already. What do you mean by climate resilience? And one element of that, you know, I think oftentimes traditionally when we think about preparing for emergencies, we are kind of looking inwardly within our four walls and we're kind of looking retrospectively. So what have been the retrospective trends that we need to be prepared for? And I would say that climate resilience is a bit of a pivot or an addition to that. We want to be looking ahead at prospective risks and also to be looking outward, to be thinking about how our healthcare facility is an essential node in enhancing the resilience of the entire community, how do inequitable impacts of climate-related risks in our community affect our ability to deliver care, what are the implications for potentially a surge in need in our patient population, can we proactively address some of those vulnerabilities in our community to address some of the unmet needs that our patients are experiencing uh, that might be driving health inequalities in our communities. And there are also opportunities at the bedside to, um, in clinical encounters, to incorporate um, like screening and addressing risks that relate to climate hazards. It can be sort of part and parcel of the social determinants of health programs that an increasing number of healthcare organizations are incorporating in clinical care. So some of that bedside uh, uh, care coordination to protect vulnerable patients and also counseling and information at the bedside. I think it, it should be really foundational to our climate action. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, that makes sense. So kind of an all-in effort um, pretty much from everybody who can be involved. Um, and I wanted to ask, I guess, maybe as a last question, you know, you are doing policy work and um, 
encouraging stakeholders to to be engaged in this work. At what point do you think government should go beyond making uh, recommendations or perhaps um, certain incentives to healthcare stakeholders to ensure that they go beyond just paying lip service to you know certain commitments that they're making publicly and really making sure that there is accountability, that progress is being made, um, and that you know, we really are moving in the right direction in terms of equity and environmental justice and not just um, sort of public commitments. I think the good news is that climate action is absolutely aligned with our imperative and our mission in healthcare to deliver quality care, increasing efficiency, reducing cost, improving outcomes. Climate action is absolutely aligned with our mission to improve the health of the patients that we serve. I view it as sort of part and parcel of the kind of care that we need to deliver in this century. And and to answer your question, really uh, uh, that mix of incentives and requirements is what is going to get us there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Aparna. I really enjoyed chatting with you about this. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, we're going to discuss the rise of digital therapeutics and ways to fix the pharmacy benefit manager industry. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.